please take your Bibles, please take your outline. You really should follow along in the outline. Very helpful to keep up with where we are. And uh, if you saw the insert on small groups, you need an outline. That's all you need along with your Bible to be a part of small groups. So please take the outline with you. And uh, small groups meets tonight. There are three active groups. And I hope you'll see in the insert that a new group is being birthed. And uh, very excited about that with him and Ethan Bond, uh, who will be hosting that new group. And so I hope some of you will be a part of that. So look with me at 1 Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. This is part four in the series. And yes, if you remember, we did read this text last week. We're still in it. It's just too much there to move on. And uh, the Lord would not allow me to move on. So we're going to stay here. There's a lot that we're going to look at in these few verses. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17. My sources are Philip Graham Rikens, Reformed Expository Commentary from 1 Timothy. Michael Bentley, Passing on the Truth from 1 Timothy. And that's from the Wellwind Commentary Series. John R.W. Stott, the late John R.W. Stott from The Bible Speaks Today. And uh, that's my sources. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word. Only a few verses, but very powerful verses. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 15, this is the word of God. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, your word. Thank you for saving people like me. I agree with Paul. The worst Thank you, Lord, for lifting me up and putting me on a rock, on a place to stand. And I thank you for all those who can echo an amen to that in this room. Lord, may we understand what Paul meant. And may we really embrace how wonderful your mercy and grace is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Incredible to think that some of you who are alive today were not alive on 9-11. 9-11 changed the world, not in a good way. In an article entitled, American Ground Unbuilding the World Trade Center, William Language writes about the cleanup of the World Trade Center disaster. In an excerpt that I'll read to you, he describes the conflict between those who were trying to move ahead with the cleanup and those trying to recover the bodies of the dead. He writes, One morning in October, I accompanied Ken Holden into the expanding valley at the center of the pile, where a temporary access road of ground asphalt millings was being built. A fire chief came up and said, you got to give us time. you got to get these guys to stop covering up the debris, burying us with dirt. Before Holden could answer, another fireman, An older man in filthy clothes and a scarred helmet rushed up and said, You stop these guys from pushing dirt in here. He had a weathered face, a heavy sweat on his upper lip. His eyes were wild. 
He said, I've got two friends out there, and I've got my son buried right in here. Holden put a calming hand on his shoulder, but it had no effect. The fireman wandered off with his shovel, a short entrenching tool bent 90 degrees. And he climbed down into a hole in the rubble, and the chief repeated almost apologetically, he lost his son in there. Holden said, how much time do you need? A day? Two days? The chief swept his hand wide and said, they're buried all through. Holden went on to find the one who was in charge to tell him to stop the road work for now. And when he came back, the old fireman was down on his knees, probing loose debris and sniffing shovels, shovelfuls for the scent of death. Now I want you to hold that thought. Those who claim to be tolerant of Christians and Christianity are oftentimes anything but. And since Christians insist that there's only one way to God, one way to eternal life, that being through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the religious people of this culture in which we live recoil at that conviction. Many religious people in this day and age search through the various religions, through the pile, almost like a smorgasbord, searching for the very best in every religion. Which means that you and I, by our conviction that Christ is the only way, the only way to God, well, that just makes us intolerant people. Yet this is the only message that the Apostle Paul and the disciples and first century followers of Christ preached that Jesus Christ was the only way. They proclaimed that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and me. And Jesus put it this way when speaking to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So what I see, and I'm sure you see it too, is people want to make the gospel so very complicated. They want to work real hard to better themselves. They'll read books on how they can have their best life now, like following instructions on a, on a cooking show. They say things like, just show me the ten ways to fix my life, and I'll wrap it up in a nice big bow and offer it back to God. And the Bible says, God says, no thank you. That will not work. Why not? Let's look at three lessons as we study through this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy 1. The first lesson of three is you have to understand the big picture. You have to understand the big picture. This great, big, beautiful world we live in, this world that along with all the beautiful things it has to offer, is really a messed up world. There are a lot of people that just don't get why this world is so messed up. It really is pretty simple. If you read the beginning of the book. Now, as I said, a number of you in this room weren't even alive on 9-11. And long before that, there was a time in which there was no pause button. There was no record button. There was no rewind button. And so sometimes the worst thing in the world I can remember Walking into the room, my, my wife said, you, you missed it. You, I said, I missed what? You missed the beginning of the show. And if you missed the beginning of the show, 
you're lost. The whole show. And so I can remember asking my wife throughout the show, what, what, what was that about? Stop. Not now. I'll tell you. The commercial. You know, kids, you just don't understand. Life was hard. Life was hard. And now we can rewind and watch it over again and pause it and do whatever we want to do. And, and I say all that to say that if you've read through this book, through this Bible, and you have not read the first three chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the book, then you don't get it. You don't understand. Genesis 1 tells about the creation. In the beginning, God. That's the way it began. When the word before loses all meaning, there was one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then God created all things. And lastly, he created us. He created us. And he gave Adam and Eve this wonderful garden to enjoy. A paradise, it was called. And he said, you can have all that is in this garden. You can eat of all of it, except for one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, and in the day that you eat of that, you will die. And Genesis 3 tells us the story, the awful story of the serpent, a talking serpent who comes to Eve and deceives Eve, who eats of the fruit. And then she deceives her husband and he eats the fruit. And so in chapter 3, we read about the entrance of temptation into the life of Adam and Eve. And once Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden fruit, in the process, sinned against God, this whole world changed. God tells Adam and Eve that in place of that perfect, beautiful world they had before, from now on there will be conflict, a struggle for food. And for the first time in history, human beings will suffer and eventually die. As a result, throughout human history, as one writer calls it, quote, the crazy, self-defeating stupidity of sin, where we wave our fists in the face of our Creator, that has ruled the day. And what people don't think about or even know is that the whole world is living with the effects of the curse on Adam, Eve, and the serpent. So in order to understand this sometimes crazy world we live in, we have to know, we simply have to know the big picture. And if you don't get the big picture that what happened in Genesis 3 affected everything, then you will ask yourselves, until the sun goes down, why did that have to happen? Why was such a bad thing like 9-11 even a part of our world? So the big picture is this. As long as this world lasts, there will be no relief. No relief in suffering. Because all of mankind is a rebel. All of mankind is an outlaw. Which means, and this is one of the most important parts of the big picture... Everyone, everyone is a sinner. Every single one of us. Now, don't miss this. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. I'll say it again. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Because you, it's your nature to sin. You were born in sin. Presbyterians like to say it this way. Total depravity. That we're totally depraved. And you wonder, what in the world does that mean? 
He's a great theologian. He's actually still alive. 92 years old, Dr. J.I. Packer. He defines total depravity this way. Quote, total depravity means that at every point man, not that at every point man is as bad as he could be, but that at no point is he as good as he should be. Say that again. Total depravity means not that at every point man is as bad as he could be, but that at no point is he as good as he should be. So according to scripture, that is the fundamental human condition in a nutshell. And and you might think, I I really don't think I sin that much. Really? I really don't sin that much. Then think of it this way. Sin is anything that you do that does not please God. Sin is anything you do that does not please God. Secondly, sin is anything that you think that does not please God. Thirdly, sin is anything that you say that does not please God. And fourthly, Sin is anything you should have done, but failed to do. Did you get all that? In your outline, sin is anything you do that does not please God. Sin is anything you think that does not please God. Sin is anything you say that does not please God. And sin is anything that you should have done, but failed to do. It's really interesting, this last category, you call those sins of omission. Most people who attend church don't really see themselves as sinners by commission. Because many of these people live reasonably respectable lives. But everyone, everyone who attends church will admit to being a sinner by omission. In other words, have you truly loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. Have you truly loved your neighbor as yourself? No. You see, that's evidence that what we are and what we've done is unsatisfactory. If God is keeping track of what we do and what we shouldn't do, and the Bible says that he is, then that just proves that God considers you and I as creatures of significance. And because your sin is so real and so great, my sin is so real and so great, we need to look at a second lesson. And that is this. You have to understand the importance of the gospel message. Not only understand the big picture, but you need to understand the importance of the gospel message. And... Paul underscored it in verse 15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So when he says this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, what does he mean? He means here's something you need to fully embrace because it is reliable. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. In fact, if you read the pastoral epistles, which is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, five times Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. And this is the first. So this message is very, very important because it's reliable. And the reason we can say it's reliable is because the message came from the very lips of the Lord Jesus. Yet I can stand here until I'm blue in the face and state how extremely important this message is. And sadly, there are many who just don't hear it or don't want to hear it. I cannot tell how many people don't get not only how important the message is, but how important it is for them. So listen to this trustworthy, reliable gospel message found again in verse 15. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Apostle Paul was not giving Timothy a new message. He was simply reminding him of the things that Timothy already knew. 
But don't miss the thing that people miss. Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the Savior of sinners. And don't miss the thing that so many people miss. This God-man, Jesus, left heaven to come live on this world, on this earth. To enter into our sinful world. The Lord of glory took upon himself human flesh with all of its frailties and all of its limitations. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to be sad. In fact, at times he knew what it was to be happy. He also was tempted, tested, tried in every way just as we are tempted, yet he never sinned. Why would Jesus go through all the trouble of becoming like us to save us? Miserable sinners. We discussed last week the point that even the Apostle Paul himself, who wrote over half the New Testament, was himself a sinner. And in verse 15, he calls himself the worst of them all. One version, the King James calls it, calls himself the chief of sinners. It reminded me this week about a movie that I watched years ago with Bruce Willis called Striking Distance. I, I like movies. I like action movies. It's an action movie. And in that movie, there's a constant refrain in that movie. Who's the top cop? Who's the top cop now? Who's the top cop? It's two cops that were arguing about that. So who's the top sinner? Paul says, I I won the prize. I won the prize. Because I persecuted the one who started all this. And I killed people who were a part of his church. You know what's beautiful about this passage? You might have missed this. When Paul says, I was the worst, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Look at the verse. Of whom I am the worst. You see, that's the thing that we believe, is that once you come to know Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, but you still sin. Because you still have that identity that's lingering within you, that nature to sin. And so it's no surprise to me when I hear that a Christian has sinned in a bad way. Because I'm a Christian and I still sin. And I am still a sinner. But I'm not just a sinner. I'm a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God. And so Jesus Christ lives in me. And that's my new identity. And that's what I long to live by each and every day. Is who I am in Christ. The Greek words is actually... Even for me, someone who can't remember a lot of Greek, it's pretty easy to remember. Ego emi. Ego emi, which is the phrase, I am. I am chief of sinners. So you need to know that Paul is not trying to use false humility. No, his eyes had been opened to the fact that he was a great sinner. Because after his encounter with Jesus, he saw the Lord in all of his beauty. And he finally recognized that none of his own righteous needs, deeds made him any cleaner. He realized that in comparison to the purity and holiness of Christ, he was just filthy. I talked to you last week about John Newton, and John Newton said this in his latter years. He said, although my memory is failing, I still remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The big picture is the first lesson. The importance of the gospel message is the second lesson. And then thirdly, you have to understand the power of the gospel message. Not only the importance of the gospel message, but the power of the gospel message. A couple of weeks ago, and this is very important, so stick with me, we studied about the law of God. In short, we studied about the Ten Commandments. 
It was a pretty weighty subject and at times difficult for me to present. And I hope you were here. And if not, then you can find it and listen to it on our podcast. And I hope that you will do that. If you miss a Sunday, I hope you'll go to our podcast or go to our website and listen to the sermon. But in that message, I spoke about the many ways that those in our culture and those who participate in church break the commandments. It was especially difficult for me when I spoke about the seventh commandment, which reads, you shall not commit adultery. If you remember, Paul not only addressed that specific commandment about sexual sin, but he also addressed it in terms of homosexuality in particular. I say it was difficult for me when talking about that because I know how many people are touched with this struggle in our nation, in our community, and yes, in our church. You know, for, the, for those of you that have someone in your family that struggles about their sexual identity, I want you to know you're not alone. There are a number of people, maybe it's an adult son or, or daughter or an adult sister or brother, or maybe young people, someone that you know right now at school who's struggling with this. You see, this culture loves to speak about identity, doesn't it? People are searching for their sexual identity. People are searching for their gender identity. And it's so confusing. But what so many people do not understand is what they're really searching for is Jesus. Is the love of Jesus. And all those detours into this alternative lifestyle or that new identity ultimately leaves you unfulfilled and empty. Look at verse 16. For that very reason. Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And so Paul was shocked. He was shocked that God did not strike him dead on that Damascus road. Especially since he'd been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He says, I was shown mercy because, he says... I acted in ignorance and unbelief. His conclusion, God's tolerance and patience is incredible. So why did Paul say, why did God save Paul? He says, as an example, quote, for those who would believe. In other words, if God could change a man like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, the worst of sinners... One who is persecuting not only the church, but Jesus himself. He can change anyone's heart. Only one catch. You must find your new identity in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Because he is the hope of the world. His gospel is the hope of the world. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And in repentance, turn from your sins. And by God's grace and God's kindness... Place your faith in Christ alone. And it's at this point that Paul launches in our text into this beautiful, incredibly deep theological benediction, which has he has a tendency to do from time to time. It's his way of giving praise to God for what he alone deserves. So Paul addresses God as the king, as the sovereign ruler of all things, who not only reigns over all things, but has established his special kingdom through Jesus Christ over his redeemed people. And that's the reason why we sang as an opening hymn, Immortal, Invisible, because that's what Paul said in verse 17. God is number one, eternal. 
If you're taking notes, God is eternal. Number two, God is immortal, which means he's beyond the ravages of decay and death. Number three, God is invisible. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made God known to us. And he's beyond the limits of every horizon. Then fourthly, God is the only God. He is beyond any rival. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Let's read that out loud together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You know, and before we pray, just like that father in my opening story about 9-11, that father who was earnestly, earnestly, diligently seeking through the ashes and the dirt, searching for some part of his son, some part of his family, some part of his friends, you and I, we need to feel the same sort of urgency to love our family and friends well. Those who are blinded, like the Apostle Paul was blinded, blinded in unbelief and living a life that is empty. May we be enabled by the Lord to love those who are searching, love those who are apart from Jesus Christ and reach out with the life giving patience and kindness of our Savior, even Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. And Lord Jesus, I want to stop and thank you for your patience with me. For your patience with my friends here in front of me. Lord, there's none of us that can elevate ourselves and say, we are the best. Because, Lord, we know ourselves too well. And like the Apostle Paul, we know what's inside of us. And we could say with Paul. Thank you for saving me, the worst of sinners. So, Lord, I thank you for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. To God be the glory for all that you've done in our lives. And, Lord, for anyone here who is, who is so empty and unfulfilled because they're searching in all the wrong places for what they really are, are needing, which is your love. Would you touch their heart and lead them to turn their life over to you? To repent of their sins and invite Jesus to be Savior and Lord of their lives. Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of people in this place. And Lord, break our hearts over those that we know and love who are far from you. We might not stop praying for them or even looking for an opportunity to let them know how much we love them. I ask this in the name of Jesus, who is here today. Amen.